postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church Podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Happy Monday, everyone. It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Project, or the Story Church Podcast, actually. The Story Church Project is basically the whole project, and the podcast is a bit of that project. So welcome back to the Story Church Podcast, guys. Super awesome to have you here with me. It's a beautiful Monday morning here in Perth, although it's been raining a lot. Um, But uh, I don't know what it looks like where you are right now. Um, whether you're driving your car or sitting in your house or whatever it is, I just, I really, really hope that as you look out the window, you see the beautiful sunshine that I'm currently seeing because it's really nice. Anyways, welcome back, you guys. We are into episode six now of our first Pot in Our series here on the podcast. And episode six is um, uh, we are looking again at understanding the secular mind. And uh, it's going to be fun because I think we're getting into some of the more practical bits here today where we're actually going to talk about ways in which we can begin reframing. So we're going to do a bit of a recap um, and then we're going to uh, actually expand a little bit more on the experience of uh, secularism and so- social fragmentation. Uh, but then we're going to start diving into some of the more practical bits and pieces that we can actually begin to contend with and adapt and, you know, play around with uh, as we seek to redesign uh, not only our missional approach as individuals, but our local Adventist churches as well for this mission. Um, so before we begin, though, let me let me just uh, remind each and every one of you guys that there is currently a Bible study set that uh, is in the makings and is going to be released very, very soon. I think uh, it'll be uh, up and available by November. And this is the Bible study set that I've been working on for the last five years. And the Bible study set is basically designed for studying the Bible with a post-church culture. So it's a Bible study set that covers the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church because, uh, let me let me make this clear in case I haven't been clear in previous episodes, I, I believe in all 28 fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church. Uh, I'm not some raving liberal who thinks that we've got it all wrong and uh, except for a few things. No, I'm, I'm totally cool with the 28. And I believe people should know the 28. I believe people should understand the 28 because I believe that each and every single doctrine is just a, a different lens into the heart of God. And so it's not simply about saying, hey, God is love and Jesus loves you, but how do you understand that love in, in, in depth, right? And I think the doctrines really afford us the opportunity to explore the heart of God at different and varying levels of, de- levels of depth and color. And so that's what this series is, uh, this Bible study set was designed like, is designed definitely to teach the 28 fundamental beliefs, is designed to totally give someone uh, uh, sort of like a... Um, What's the what's that book? A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Yeah, it's kind of like a Hitchhiker's Guide to <laughs> to Scripture. Um, so basically, what it does is it gives the overarching narrative of Scripture, and uh, it does it in a way that it, it presents the conversation, it presents the themes, and and then you engage with the person that you're uh, studying with or journeying with um, in on that basis. But anyways, it's almost available, guys. Uh, it's it should be ready by November of this year. Uh, all things being equal. It should be released, and uh, it's going to be released in two formats. So it's going to be released as a book that you can actually purchase and have it in your hands. So I'm, I'm not doing the whole pamphlet thing. Uh, it's just going to be a book that you can purchase and have in your hands, okay? And uh, it's it's been designed with a very sort of minimalistic, clean, elegant look. Uh, there's actually no color in it. It's very minimalistic. Um, it's it's kind of has that you know that um, that clean elegant touch to it. Uh, designer did a fantastic job. It does have graphics and you know icons and stuff for the different things that we're depicting throughout Scripture, but it does it in a in a very elegant way. We wanted to avoid anything that was sort 
sort of like cheesy, um, airbrushed, uh, over-the-top sort of religious iconography. And also wanted to make sure that I wanted to make sure that the product would remain affordable because once you go color, things just get super expensive with printing costs, etc. So I wanted to make sure that the product would remain affordable. And the other reason for that is because so one format it'll come in is book and the other format it's going to come in is PDF. And so you will actually be able to purchase the PDF of the of the study guide and print it at your house. And so this is why I also didn't want color in the final product because, you know, ink costs a lot of money, you guys. I don't want you guys having to, uh, you know, buy ink every few weeks because you've been printing Bible study sets uh, at your house. So definitely watch this space, guys. It is coming and it is coming at you really fast and there will be more information coming in the coming weeks um, as as we get closer to that release date, it's gonna be it's gonna be a blast. It's gonna be a blast. I'm really looking forward to it. Okay, now let's let's go ahead and get into episode five, guys, and and uh, get through this as quickly as possible. Uh, just a bit of a recap before we begin. We've we've talked essentially about three things since this series began, and it's all encapsulated under one overarching theme, a meta truth, right? And the meta truth behind all the different truths that we've explored in this series is that if you want to reach out to secular culture effectively, It's it goes beyond simply understanding the ideas that they embrace. And, and this is something that we as Christians, particularly Adventists, we're very rationalistic, we're very influenced by the um, the, the movement, the sort of enlightenment rationalism. And, uh, and so we we're sort of have that sort of, uh, you know, like real matter of fact approach to truth. And what this means is that Oftentimes, if you want to understand Buddhism, what you do is you pick up a book on, you know, here is Buddhism and here's why it's wrong. And now you understand it. And like, here is Hinduism and here's why it's wrong. And now you understand it. And here's postmodernism and here's why it's wrong. And now you understand it. Um, and the truth is you don't. You do not understand it. You do not understand someone's worldview unless you can appreciate it, unless you can dance to his rhythm a little and defend it, even if you don't necessarily agree with its tenets, but you can actually stand there and argue on its behalf. When you're capable of doing that, then you can say, I get you, right? Um, even then, you got to do it with a grain of salt because unless you've lived, you have you've have the shared experience of a, uh, a postmodern secular mind, um, it's difficult to really fully ever say, I get you, but you have a more authentic way of understanding them if you've actually sought to inhabit their worldview rather than just find the holes in it to poke at, right? And so this is a real key. And obviously in Adventism, like we, we go even a step further because we're not simply looking at like, you know, here is why, you know, here is postmodernism, here's why it's wrong. But then we get into all kind of weird, bizarre conspiracy theories on here's how postmodernism is connected to spiritualism and Romanism and the papacy. And, you know, it's it's like the classic Adventist sleazy car salesman, uh, only he's not selling cars, he's selling DVDs. And the easiest way to sell anything in Adventism is to take a topic, any topic, I don't care what topic it is, take a topic... Uh, expose it as evil, connect it to the Pope, and boom, you know, you you got a following, you've got sales, right? It's pretty ridiculous. And, and so really throughout our history, we haven't been the kind of people who are known for inhabiting the world of the other. To the contrary, we, we're known for building walls against the world of the other, for attacking the world of the other, for demonizing the world of the other. We do it with Hollywood. We do it with different religious expressions. We do it with modernity. We do it with science. We do it with everything. And uh, and so my invitation then is, look, if you want to do that, go for it. Go for it. But just, you know, don't come talk to me about it because that's not what I'm about. If you want to understand secular culture and you want to effectively reach secular culture, then you you got to let that go, right? You, you have to take a more humble, incarnated approach where you're actually really getting to inhabit the world of the other. Um, and so in, in our series, what we've done is we've explored some of the basic tenets of the world of the other, beginning with this concept of the absurdity of life, right? Um, and the absurdity of life is essentially the codification of the experience of modern secularism. Uh, some might say it's a post-Nietzschean experience where it's in, 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 reaction, in, in reaction to the death of God that Nietzsche 
sort of proclaimed in Thus Spake Zarathustra, you have this culture that is now attempting to replace God. You know, what, what, what are we going to replace him with? You know, we, we've killed him and now what? You know, um, and so you have this experience where man is now attempting to derive meaning from something other than the divine because the divine is no longer and so where do we where do we get the meaning from right and and where do we get significance from and where do we get purpose from and 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 so you go to you know philosophers uh, not philosophers but uh who was the psychologist i forget his name uh, it might have been carl jung who um, who basically argued that the values that Nietzsche thought were going to disappear because they were no longer externally rooted in, in God, uh, Jung, and don't quote me on this, I believe it was Jung, um, argued that uh, those values are actually inherent, right? So uh, it's not that we are reaching out into the world around us to find another source for the values that govern us, but that the values are internal to us and we just have to discover them like they're already there. Um, and so there's a sense in which you could even argue from a theological perspective, being beings who created in the image of God, that the imago Dei basically, um, basically means that regardless of what belief system we adopt, there is always going to be something within us that is the blueprint, the design of God that is screaming and reaching out for expression and that that could be you know sort of the value structure of love and compassion and goodness and kindness now it doesn't fully manifest because we're sinful beings but it's there and it's screaming it's reaching out and so in a sense this is where we find ourselves now in, in that the culture is essentially um living this post nietzschean apocalypse of the death of god and we are aiming to contend with the seeming insignificance of the universe like hey guess what the universe is going to implode it's it's it, you know the, the day is coming right the heat death of the universe the day is coming where everything that we value everything that we find beauty in every everything that we have um uh known our entire existence it's all going to end because why because the universe is going to implode, right? And 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 so we think as Christians, hey, this is a terrible prognosis, right? This is man, we we got to do something about this before it metastasizes in the cultural consciousness and people are just depressed and anxious all the time and we do see glimpses of that for sure. Maybe glimpses is an understatement. We certainly do see the effect of this worldview on the cultural consciousness, but it's not as clear cut as we would like it to be because for some people this absurdity, right? This, this plague, this haunting for significance that comes from within, and then this universe that says, "Hey, uh, your your hauntings for significance are ultimately meaningless," uh, and sort of mocks that desire and that that pursuit. Um, we that's the absurdity, by the way. That's that's what we mean by absurdity is the tension between those two, um, and that the tension between these two is is not always or necessarily a bad thing in the cultural consciousness. Now, I'm not going to go into explaining all that because I already did it in previous episodes. I'm just summarizing here. Uh, but a perfect example is is Katie Mack. Um, in, in, this is, by, by, by the way, a BBC News article that came out uh, in August of this year, 2020. Uh, Katie Mack, knowing how the universe will end, and this is how the title of the article finishes, is freeing, right? And this is written by Cameron Burke. And, and it's basically the idea that... Um, this whole concept of the total annihilation of the universe and everything that we are and everything that we've ever known is actually freeing, right? It's, it's not a depressing thing. It's not something that you want to fix or, or, or that, you know, leads you into nihilistic despair but rather that hey you know the universe is going to implode and it's all going to be done and it's going to be over and that's actually freeing that's liberating right and so we talked about this for quite some some time in previous episodes how people are finding within the absurdity and within the meaninglessness they're finding relief defining freedom and the reason for that is that religion up to this point has occupied a very tyrannical and coercive space in people's consciousness and finally they can look at the universe around them and say i don't have to live with that pressure right i don't have to live under those ethical straitjackets. none of it matters we're here let's just make the most of it 
because the universe is going to implode and it's all going to be gone. So let's just, you know what? Let's just live it up. Let's make the most of it. Let's enjoy our lives. Let's love our families. Let's love our kids. Let's fill the world which is much, with us as much joy and possibility as we can. And then we go to sleep and it's done. And that's okay. That's okay. So what this basically leads to, and, and I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail uh, because we'll be here forever, but it leads to, what, uh, leads to what Charles Taylor, the philosopher Charles Taylor, refers to as the imminent frame of the culture. And, and this is, uh, if you guys remember the book I recommended in the last episode, How Not to Be Secular or A Secular Age by Charles Taylor, which is 900-page book, which, by the way, I told you guys, I asked my wife to get it for me for Father's Day, and she did. Woohoo! So I got this giant 900-page volume by Charles Taylor that I am currently reading. It's amazing. Anyways, um, by the way, like, you don't have to read stuff like that to understand the culture. By the way, I'm just a nerd, okay? So, <laughs> but so unnecessary to understand the culture. Um, but anyways, this idea of the imminent frame means that people now inhabit an, an imminent worldview, an imminent worldview. So what, what do we mean by, by imminent? Well, I'm oversimplifying here to the extreme, um, but imminent is, the, is basically uh, the opposite of transcendence, right? So a transcendent worldview is a worldview where you're, where you're um, reaching out to God, right? You're reaching out to the transcendent. You're reaching out to the beyond and asking questions of, of that God. And an imminent worldview is, or an imminent frame is where you're basically just here and you're not plagued or haunted by questions of God or the divine, or eternity. Those are all transcendent, right? Imminent means that you're just here, and you're enjoying here, and you're celebrating here, and um, yeah, you're seeking to manifest and engineer and orient your life towards significance, meaning, purpose, direction, and virtue in the here without any hauntings of the beyond. And that's essentially what we're talking about with the imminent frame. And absurdity has basically placed the culture in that space. And so as a church, our message is purely transcendent in many ways, right? Like it's transcendent, 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 but people aren't really asking those questions anymore. And so generally speaking, when people are inhabiting this imminent frame, they, they navigate life. And we've explored this already through amusements, duties, and transcendence. And, and this is a way in which they interact with the imminent world around them and seek to derive meaning and purpose and value from that imminent world. Um, and then, of course, this gives birth to a completely different language of being um, and even conceptual language than the church is using. And so we are missing people at two levels in our evangelistic proclamations. We're missing them at the conceptual language um, because we're using explanations and words and phrases that just make zero sense to the culture. Um, and then on top of that, we're missing them at the language of being because we're not speaking to the issues that are really in the heart, right? We're speaking to issues that may have been in people's hearts 50 years ago, but they're not in people's hearts anymore. And so what I want to do in this uh, second to last episode, episode number six, is I want to spend a few moments talking about um, the societal fragmentation that all of this basically leads to. And then I want to, I'm not going to spend too much time on that because I've already mentioned that a little bit, but then I want to go full, like just dive head into um, the call for evangelistic, uh, or sorry, I completely butchered that word, evangelistic elasticity, right? Uh, and so we'll get to that in a second. But by societal fragmentation, essentially um, what I'm referring to is that the culture is extremely fragmented now. And this is, really, really, really important for us to recognize because, you know, like I use terms like secular and postmodern. I use those terms so loosely, you guys, so loosely. All right. Like there, there isn't really a, a, a poster child of postmodernism and there really isn't a poster child of secularism and secularism and postmodernism aren't really even the same thing. And there's a whole bunch of other phrases that I haven't even introduced into the conversation um, that are probably useful, you know, like post-religion or irreligious or irreligiosity, um, because uh, these are phrases that 
are probably a bit more accurate, but I'm trying to keep things simple here. And the bottom line is this, that the, the culture that we inhabit now, even though it might share um, is experience in the imminent frame and in, in the pursuit or the contention with the absurdity of life, the culture that we now inhabit is extremely fragmented, right? Reaching uh, emerging secular culture in Western Australia is not the same as reaching an emerging res secular culture in downtown Manhattan, okay? Like, they're going to be very, very different. And the frames are going to be different and uh, the, the value structures are going to be different. And in fact, even if I'm in Manhattan reaching, you know, an emerging secular culture there, um, the, from person to person, they're not going to be the same, Right. So this isn't like, you know, you go into a Buddhist society and people are generally contending with very similar issues and questions and and uh, they've oriented their lives in very similar ways, right? That's not necessarily the case. Um, and likewise, it's not necessarily the case, you know, like if, if you go into like a, a Hindu or Muslim society, you'll find that people are generally operating according to very similar frameworks and that they're navigating life according to those very similar frameworks. Um, and, and that their beliefs are manifesting in, in at least moderately similar ways that you can then interact with. When it comes to secularism, um, people are just significantly different, significantly different. And the beliefs are all over the place, which is why it's so important for us to inhabit the culture, right? It's so important for us to really get to know people, to not rush to the, hey, Here's what secular people believe. Here's what postmoderns believe. Now let's go get them, right? Let's, you know, let's let's prove why it's wrong. And here's the arguments that you can use to, you know, convince your friends that they're wrong. It's not going to work, all right? Now, C.S. Lewis has this statement in The Case for Christianity where he says, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you've taken a wrong turn, then to go forward doesn't get you any nearer. In other words, and this is how he ends his statement, going back is the quickest way on. And so this is essentially why in a series like, you know, about understanding the secular mind, we're six episodes in um, and we haven't really gotten into the practical everyday things that you can do as a Seventh-day Adventist to reach your secular neighbors. Why? Because we have taken a road so far off base that basically everything up to this point have been doing a U-turn a U-turn just to get back to a place of understanding so that we can actually go forward, right? There's no point in going forward on the wrong road. We got to turn around. We got to do a massive U-turn, get back to the right road, to the missional road, to the road of understanding, of incarnation, of contextualization, of inhabiting. And once we're in that road, now we can actually go forward, okay? So, we are in that road now. I think we've arrived there throughout this series. We've, we've come to the place of understanding the absurdity and the imminent frame and the social fragmentation. Um, and, and that's where we are now, right? That's where we are now. It's, it's the world with all of its chaos and with all of its craziness. And no two secular communities are ever truly the same. Um, and that's, you know, again, using a very loose definition of secular because secularism, postmodernism, metamodernism, they're not all the same thing, okay? Um, but one way of understanding this, and, and just to, just to uh, take the next step here, is like if we return to our perceived escapes from the absurdity of life, right? So he, here's the, the clincher, particularly when it comes to evangelism, all right? Let's go back to this whole idea of the, the modes of navigation, right? Um, some pursue amusement, others pursue duties, others pursue transcendence. These are the modes of navigation um, that people generally pursue within the imminent frame to, to make sense of the world around them and to find significance and, you know, purpose and all those things. However, it's a huge mistake to think that all post-church secular people engage with these modes of navigations in the same way, right? They don't engage with them in the, in the same way. Um, in fact, they don't even, there, there probably aren't really very many people out there who would fall strictly under any of those categories either. Uh, it, to, to, to the contrary, people bounce back and forth between them all at varying degrees. 
And so what this means is that the, the days where one evangelistic blueprint or local church model could be copied and pasted without any critical thought, those days are over, guys. Like, and yet that's precisely what we continue to do, right? We, we don't, we, we're planting a church in a new region and we're not actually getting to know the culture. We're not actually getting to know the people. We're just saying, hey, we're coming from this church in, you know, part, you know, neighborhood A of the city and we're moving into neighborhood B and we're just going to copy and paste. We're just going to do the same thing we're doing there, do it here pull out the church manual, follow it to a T, and boom, there we go, it's done. And to be quite frank, it's a very lazy approach to mission, right? Um, most church plants are basically just copying and pasting the model from the old church. Um, and they engage in outreach using the same worn out parameters and follow the, again, the church manual, like it's the 10 commandments. And, and the same is true of our evangelism, by the way. Like our doctrines are presented using the same frameworks and language from city to city, most of the time using phrases and idioms that are impossible to appreciate without some sort of religious background. And little effort is put into any kind of local contextualization at, either at the level of conceptual language or the level of being. And so what this means is that um, for, for most people who attend our evangelistic series, and, and this is a common complaint, by the way, and I see it all the time as a pastor. Most of the people who attend our evangelistic series are already Adventist. Okay, already Adventist. And to make matters more awkward, they come alone. Okay. And and maybe there was a day, right, when in the absence of this wildly fragmented society, a copy and paste model could work relatively well, but the days are over. They're done. And and what this means is that the local church and evangelism is only gonna function if each body of believers commits to knowing and understanding their immediate context, right? You cannot read a book, you can't even listen to this series hoping for some magic blueprint. There is no blueprint. And if we really took this seriously, by the way, gone would be the day of the international evangelist. Okay, maybe that's an overstatement. There'll always be a space for them. But, you know, this heavy dependence on international evangelists, like we're going to do evangelism, so let's spend, you know, thousands of dollars bringing in some big speaker. But that big speaker doesn't know your context. That big speaker doesn't inhabit your city. That big speaker doesn't understand the imminent frame that is that is specific to that group of people and so you're inviting someone to speak a different conceptual language and a different language of being to the people that surround you and if we really took local mission seriously if we really contextualize if we really inhabited the spaces that god has placed us in we would have less dependence or less use for you know these adventist celebrity um big name evangelists because it would be wiser to do the work locally and to and to you know engage people locally. Now there was a time where you know the big international evangelist was like a big show, and you know he's an international speaker coming to town, and everybody showed up. Nobody cares about that anymore. Um, secular people don't care about that. So this leads us then <clears throat> to this theme, right? So you know that's social fragmentation essentially. But I want to talk about evangelistic elasticity now because now we're getting into the good stuff, right? We're getting into the sort of the practical elements that. Um, that are very uncomfortable, very, very uncomfortable. So if you find this episode uncomfortable, you should. So I won't apologize. Evangelistic elasticity. Elasticity is the capacity to constantly adapt to the changes around us, right? So it's not about adapting one time. It's about constant adaptation. And this, by the way, is my number one critique of modern Adventist churches is all they, most modern Adventist churches that I've been to, right? Modern as in, you know, they got like, you know, the latest music and a cool band and a pastor in skinny jeans, right? Like modern Adventist churches. Um, the, my critique of most modern Adventist churches is that they are, they are, they've essentially replaced the old static model with a new static model, right? So they've gone from the traditional st static model to a contemporary static model. And hey, thank the Lord that it's contemporary. Thank God that when people walk into your church, they don't feel like they step back 100 years. But the model is still static. And my encouragement would be, we need to get away from static models altogether, right? We, we need to develop elasticity where we can actually adapt to the changes around us like it's second nature, right? Like it's second nature. So in order to bring home this sort of necessity of the locally contextualized evangelistic approach, um, 
I want to introduce you to one more method of navigation that secular people use to interact with the absurdity of life, right? So we've talked about uh, we've talked about amusements, duties, and transcendence, but there's actually one more method, and it's probably the most common method um, that secular people use to interact with the absurdity of life. And I call this method the method or the mode of navigation, rather, that is more more of a mode than a method, um, the mode of equilibrium. And so what I mean by this is. Where the amused navigates absurdity through amusement and the duty-bound man through responsibilities and the transcendent through spiritual experiences, the path of equilibrium seeks to create a kind of balance between all three. So there's a healthy dose of amusement coupled with a balanced approach to life's duties and sprinkled with the occasional spiritual experience. And this can lead to a satisfying and meaningful life. Um, and this is essentially the truth uh, or, or the, the path that most well-educated secular people pursue. And hey, I'm going to be honest with you guys, it works pretty well. Maybe this is why Alan Cooperman, the director of religion research at Pew Research Center, stated that an overwhelming number of people who were raised religious but have now left report feeling or being pretty content. And so what does this look like on a pragmatic level? Well, well, you're talking about the person who, you know, they'll have a, go to a party once in a while. They don't party every weekend. They, they, they have big goals, you know, they want to be healthy. They want to stay fit. They want to have a healthy bank account and do well in their career. But once in a while, they'll go to a party and they'll have some drinks. They might get a buzz. They might even get drunk, but they don't do it all the time. Um, because most of their effort is placed into sort of engineering and constructing a consequential life through their career, through their passions, through their interests. And then, you know, a few times uh, every now and then they might listen to a podcast by Dietrich Chopra or Tony Robbins, or they might go to some Buddhist retreat or even attend church on Easter, um, you know, just to kind of get a little bit of that spiritual buzz going on. And, and this is essentially how they live their life. And it's nice. You know, there's not too much excess here or there, not too much religion, not too much work, not too much play. It's a nice little balance between play and work and the transcendent or the religious experiences. Um, now, you might say, well, I thought people inhabit an imminent frame and not a transcendent one. So wouldn't that mean that they're completely closed off to transcendent uh, experiences and the answer is no not really not really it just means that the transcendent doesn't govern their life on a day-to-day -day basis they're they and, and the transcendent by the way doesn't necessarily mean they believe in god either uh, but that's you know that's a separate conversation on its own but i think that should make sense that little bit of a snippet there uh but essentially um the, the existentialist um philosopher albert camus uh, he, he gives us a helpful glimpse into this path of equilibrium in, in a lot of his works. And um, basically, if I could summarize his perspective, it's that despite life's absurdity, Camus argued that meaning and beauty could still be found in relationships, in connections, and in beautiful experiences. Um, in other words, life is meaningless and headed nowhere in particular, but we press on nonetheless and we make the most of it, right? We don't clamor for answers that don't exist by obsessing over questions that can't be satisfied. We don't appeal to some greater reality in order to escape our current circumstances. Instead, we simply look around us and learn to love and appreciate what we have. And in doing so, we live with enthusiasm, even though we recognize the cynical center of it all. This perspective, by the way, was was uh, really came to the forefront in a debate that William Lane Craig, the apologist, Christian apologist William Lane Craig, had with Yale philosopher Shelley Kagan, um, because William was, you know, operating from a transcendent framework, and and so for William, um, Dr. Craig, rather, he's 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 really arguing and saying, well, wait a minute, like if something doesn't have eternal significance, then then it doesn't then it doesn't have meaning, you know, like you know, if you're just going to suddenly someday no longer exist then your life doesn't really have meaning. But Shelley Kagan being, uh, 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 you know, operating from a more imminent frame doesn't see it that way. And so Shelley Kagan's response was, in atheism, life has no ultimate meaning and yet it still has meaning. And so Kagan basically differentiates between ultimate meaning, which religion can give you, and meaning. 
And his argument is life has meaning. Existence has meaning. It's just not ultimate, right? And for a lot of people, particularly those who are operating off of a humanist framework, and, and, and essentially what you're doing is then you are constructing that meaning on your own. You're engineering it on your own, right? Um, and so this is essentially what we see in Craig's debate with Kagan. And, and this experience was also emphasized by, you know, obviously the one of the biggest philosophers of our time, most influential thinkers, even to this day, Friedrich Nietzsche, um, he had this disdain for religion. And by the way, he didn't just hate religion. There was another thing Nietzsche absolutely despised, and it was alcohol, right? Um, and because he saw both of them as an escape from being present in the here and now. In fact, he, he thought he saw alcohol uh, playing the same role as religion. And so, you know, you could be an a atheist who had disavowed and uh, detached himself from all religious ideas, and you'd be sitting down at the bar on Friday night telling all your friends how you'd self-liberated while sipping on a, you know, nice cold beer, and Nietzsche's answer to you would be, you haven't really liberated at all. You've just replaced religion with alcohol. So he hated both of them equally. Um, and, and for them, for him rather, uh, religion and alcohol both represented escape from the here and now. And what he saw as the pursuit of meaning was in, in finding the meaning or in constructing meaning by making our present experience better despite its brokenness. And you can't do that if you're escaping your present experience. And so the, the best approach to life for, for a lot of people, right, in the culture is this path of equilibrium. Now, suppose you're surrounded by a culture that values this path of equilibrium, right? Um, this places the church in a really bizarre position because the person who crafts a life of balance between amusement, duty, and transcendence they guard that balance with jealousy. And nothing, listen to me here, nothing threatens this balance more than a group of people who make total claims about reality. That balance between amusement duties and transcendence is threatened most by a group of people who want to make total claims about reality, claims that infringe on my equilibrium. So in the experience of the secular, Christianity and the church are ideas that are anchored in oppression, in irritation, in obsessive warnings of judgment. And they look at this and they'll, you might even have secular people in your life who've said this before, right? Judgment for what? What am I going to be judged for? For not believing in some 2,000-year-old figure, for working hard to provide for my family, for doing my best to balance life's absurdity, for not going to the building full of hypocrites and mindless rituals. If that's who God is, I'd rather burn in hell than worship him. So the Christian then, in this experience, becomes an enemy and coupled with the history of the church, the injustice of the church, and the hypocrisy of so many so-called believers, the secular man finds himself well within reason to diminish his contact with believers, to never attend their religious gatherings, and to instead keep life reasonable, simple, and balanced. A bit of amusement to pass the time, a commitment to life's duties in order to secure a better future for yourself, for your family, and the occasional spiritual experience to satisfy the inner longing for the beyond. For the beyond. And that's the path of equilibrium. And you had better not mess with it. Now, failure to comprehend these issues, not only the ones I've explained in today's episode, but the ones that I've looked at in previous episodes as well, especially as it relates to the language of being, failure to comprehend these issues is what leads to some of the biggest errors in our evangelistic message today. Now, look, I don't want to be um, an absolutist here. I think the way in which we frame our evangelistic message does work, okay? So let me be clear here. It, it does work. Not every person on the surface of the planet is a secular or a postmodern. So our evangelistic message is going to still work for people who don't identify or who haven't, you know, been conditioned by those worldviews. My argument is that especially in the West, 
the people who are not secular and not postmodern are increasingly in the minority. And even young people being raised in church are heavily impacted by this sort of late modernity. And so while our evangelistic message and the way it's framed might still work for some bit of the population, there is an increasing number of the population, year by year increasing, for which our methods are useless, right? Now, I mean, all, all you got to do is take a brief look at some of the materials offered on, on AdventistEvangelism.com, for example. Um, and again, this isn't to criticize the people who've worked on that and put those things together. Those, those things work for some folk. But I want us to think about reaching emerging secular culture, right? I want us to think about that mission field because we don't really have any resources for that mission field. And so, you know, when you go to AdventistEvangelism.com, for example, you see some of the cream of the crop of Adventist evangelism in terms of flyers and banners and posters and, you know, slides and images. And, and you see marketing language, right? Like this. Prophecy awakens. Hope in times of uncertainty. Jesus for today. Hope for tomorrow. Now, all of these approaches, this language, it's not only extremely cheesy to a postmodern society that values cynicism and irony, but it also assumes that people are clamoring after hope when in fact emerging secular culture is not clamoring after hope. Why? Because we already talked about it. Meaninglessness is relief. The ultimate Death, heat, death of the universe is freeing. It's liberating. And so here lies the insanity of it all. That despite the absurdity of the culture that we're contending with, it's not despairing, right? People are not lying awake at night wondering if there's any hope, what the future holds for America, the need for deliverance, or how they can be prepared for the crisis to come. It's not the frame that people are inhabiting. And so when the traditional evangelistic focus, like revelation of hope or searching for hope or new beginnings, discover hope in a world of terror, these approaches continue to address needs Secular people don't really feel. And worse are the handbills and flyers utilizing language like unsealed and revealed or shocking Bible truths, all of which are copywriting techniques that feel more like an online clickbait funnel than a meaningful and authentic gathering. And the tragedy is how many of us would fight to the death to make sure None of this was ever changed. Why? Because it's meaningful for us. And who cares that it's not meaningful for them as long as it makes me happy, right? Mm. I told you guys this episode was going to be uncomfortable. Now, to make matters worse, it's not just the taglines that we use to advertise these series that are totally tone deaf, but the list of topics covered, right? Creation and evolution, archaeology, the lost day of history, and why are there so many denominations? These are all addressing questions that few people are asking, all the while claiming to be the truth that people need to hear while packaged in religious jargon and images of preachers holding threatening black Bibles while donning a cheesy smile with a politician-style suit, complete, no less, with those fat, out-of-style neckties, is it no wonder it's not working? It doesn't take a genius or a rocket scientist to figure that out. But it's, it's not over, right? Think also of the artwork these flyers often use, right? It's not simply that the beats, beasts are bizarre to a post-church culture, but that the style of the art overall usually reeks of 1950s American suburbia. It's cheesy it, and it tastes airbrushed. Now, I want to make a, a shout out here. I want to do a shout out here. I want to I I do a shout out to the uh, Australian Union Conference because when it comes to graphic and design, you guys are usually pretty on it. And, you know... I like I like a lot of the stuff that I see coming out of the AUC. It's some, some good good work, um, but 
in the NAD, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a bit, uh, I don't know. Hopefully things are getting better. But here's the thing. A lot of this artwork that we use in a lot of our evangelistic, you know, PowerPoints and flyers, etc. None of those images interact with the absurdity of life. So a secular culture sees that stuff and they just think, ugh, religious nutcases. Because that's all that image communicates, that imagery communicates. It communicates just crazy people. The images don't question reality. They don't invite introspection. They don't protest injustice. To make matters worse, we often resort to these phony stock images to depict various themes, you know? I can't stand as uh, stock images that people use when, you know, you see them usually during the sermons on baptism and it, it shows, you know, as you're preaching and you've got your Bible text on baptism, it'll show pictures of people who've been baptized. And these are people who are supposedly now holy. And we've got these cheesy stock images of the kid with the polo shirt and, 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 you know, the uh, suburban comb over um, holding a Bible under one arm and looking up at the sky, smiling while the light is shining on him. I mean, seriously, that stuff is irritating. It's it's so airbrushed and it's ridiculous and unrealistic and just, you know, in, in many ways, it just makes me want to puke. You can just imagine people who are seeking, right? And so this imagery, I love how Australian Adventist artist Shelley Poole expressed it, right? She, she expressed this. She said that we were having a conversation and, on Facebook and I said, you know, what do you think about this? Um, art that we often use and you got to understand uh, Shelley Poole is not simply an artist in Australia an Adventist artist in Australia she is um, she rubs shoulders with secular culture a lot uh, in fact it was Shelley Poole who introduced me to metamodernism she was like Marcus well it wasn't directed at me I was sitting in a room full of pastors she's like you all need to stop talking about postmodernism that's over <laughs> oh, and I was like what okay cool let's let's do this so thank you Shelly but um yeah we were talking about this and she says ah yes this how she re refers to this American you know sort of style of art she says she refers to it as the North American shampoo model <laughs> wearing a bathrobe and a beauty sash flawless skin oh these airbrushed images, she continues, have become synonymous with fake and inauthentic in the emerging first world global culture. Now, Shelley continues by adding that the images aren't necessarily bad. They do represent real cultural trends that were popularized in post-war North American culture, a time in which, she says, the culture genuinely valued the ideal as a mark of thriving and affluence. However, as she keenly notes, these images are 50 years too late. And as a result, our artwork comes across as, well, cheap, lackluster, and disengaged. And, and so in light of this, I'm really inclined to agree with the authors of Growing Young, the book Growing Young, Six Essential Strategies to Help Young People Discover and Love Your Church, when they stated that many of yesterday's evangelism tactics sit like awkward lawn decorations in the front yard of American Christianity. These approaches, the authors conclude, often feel about as winsome as gaudy yard art. So what images should we use then? You might be thinking, hey, you're going to criticize the images. What should we be using? Well, here we get back into this whole invitation to contextualization, to the decentralization of gospel ministry. We have this, this tendency to centralize, 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 have one office you know, have one place in the world where they're designing all the stuff and then they send it out to everyone and we use it in our local context. It's like, no, that, I mean, maybe that worked in the 50s. Doesn't work anymore. We've got to get away from that. So both Poole and, and, and a fellow UK-based Adventist artist, uh, Daniel J. Blyden, uh, they both agree that there isn't a formula, right? Instead, we have to commit to contextualized art that speaks to our surrounding cultures and their respective fragmentation as opposed to using a one-size-fits-all model. Now, Daniel notes that context or that the context in which we adapt to particular demographics that surround us, that is the key, right? That is the key. 
So your local church, your young people, your artists, who are they? Get to know your culture, get to know your environment, get to know your city and create art that will speak to your sphere of influence, right? Stop going to, you know, evangelismgraphics.com to get the PowerPoints and the flyers that were made by some guy who lives in Utah in the middle of nowhere, right? No, just where are you? Right? Where are you? Who are the people around you? You want to do evangelism there? Obviously, there's more, you got to frame more than just the artwork, but that's a good place to start at least, right? It's like actually getting to know the culture around you and figuring out what kind of artwork would speak meaningfully in, um, you know, in our advertising, etc. Now, I'm going to wrap it up. In the next episode, I want to talk about redesigning the local church, okay? Like re- actually redesigning the local church for this task, of connecting with a fragmented secular culture. But I want to conclude today's episode with this. If we recognize the societal fragmentation that we inhabit and we commit to evangelistic elasticity, the our ability to reach this increasingly post-church culture will begin to increase. But this is only ever going to happen if we seek to inhabit the imminent frame of the culture and learn to appreciate the chaos consciousness with which they are contending. If we're merely looking at the culture as a problem to be fixed, if we're merely looking from the outside to find the holes that we can poke at and argue with and and debate and, and, and reject and demonize, then forget it. It's never going to work. But if we actually seek to come close, as Jesus did, to mingle with people as one who desires their good, to minister to their needs, spend time with them, listening, and really understanding where they're coming from, then, and only then, do we have the appropriate foundation from which we can develop an elasticity of evangelism that will prove effective in our sphere of influence. I'm going to end there, guys. I'll catch you next week. Take care and God bless. (laughs) 